Gresham College presents Crime and Punishment, Guilty Until Proven Innocent by Professor Joe Delahunty QC. I am Joe Delahunty and I am really delighted that there's so many of you here tonight because one of the reasons that I took up the professorship was to try to work out a way in which I could describe in simple terms but not simplistically what it is we do in a family court. Because in the main, you'll know what goes on in a criminal court because the press cover it. And in fact, you can walk in and you can see and hear exactly what's going on. But in a family court, and particularly when it's a, a court dealing with the welfare of a child and the state is intervening in the family's life, you hear and read nothing unless you go on Bailey to read the law reports or unless you're involved in the case. So um, this is really going to be a teaser because what I should say to you um, is the written handout contains all the references you will need it's got data par excellence so you may want. It will bore you with case names called re A and B and X, Y and Z. Um, and none of that will make any sense to you unless you go through this lecture. So if I do my job right, hopefully what you will wish to do when you leave this room is to pick up the leaf outside to learn a little bit more about the science that we deploy in family justice cases. So here we are, tonight's lecture. Guilty until proven innocent, abused baby or benign causes. Um, Twitter apparently is the thing to do. If any of you want to tweet while I'm going along, um, that's the handles down there. So here we are. Um, this is part two, as I've said, of a two-part lecture. Part one was on the 26th of January. I was unable to deliver it personally, but the handouts are outside, and because I couldn't deliver it personally, I may weave in some of the major differences between family and crime as we are talking. And this is the second part of it, which is effectively trying to take one case example to try to explain, as I say, how medicine and science play such a pivotal role in the world that I inhabit. So, without more ado, what are we talking about? Right, just a reminder, in the cases I deal with, we're talking about the court's duty to protect the child from harm, which requires hard choices. To return a child to an abusive parent wrongly can lead to further injury or death, but to remove a child and place it for adoptions, it says here, on medical and scientific evidence that is flawed or turns out to be incorrect on the data subsequently discovered is an irrevocable decision because once a child is placed for adoption, that decision is finite. And that is therefore the hard burden that any judge in the family division takes upon his or her shoulders singly. I say judge and I say it now and I shall repeat in the lecture because one of the differences between crime and care is there is no jury in a family courtroom. There's no jury to determine the facts, no judge who simply advises on the law. The weight of responsibility on the judge who hears these cases is immense because they alone determine all the facts and the matters. I have nothing but the highest respect of those that do the work. Of the cases that arouse the most uncertainty, anxiety and anger in the public and the press are those that involve a shaken baby. That's because babies deserve, need, want protection and love. And when that love goes awry, either through a momentary loss of control or through something more sinister, it's the baby that suffers sometimes irrevocably. It was one of the reasons why last year, you might remember, there was a panorama programme which was looking at some of the science that was caused to determine these cases. And one of my favourite judges, Sir Mark Headley, had this to say of the type of decisions that are made. In cases where children have been harmed, allegedly, note the word allegedly, 
by their parents, the stakes are extraordinarily high because in a criminal case, a parent is facing a long prison sentence. In family cases, they're facing the loss of surviving children because an abused child is taken away. So, think of this type of scenario. A young baby dies whilst under the sole care of a parent or childminder. That child can give no clue to clinicians as to what has happened. Experts, prosecuting authorities, do the best they can do to reconstruct what has happened to that child in its life and in the dying moments before it left us. I give a warning here because I think there's a danger from family practitioners that we become somewhat inured to the sorrow and the tragedy of the cases in which we deal. It is a brutal and hard reality that children die at the hands of their parents. The cases that we deal with always um, have someone's sorrow at the heart of them. And in any of these cases, whether a child has died through benign causes or through inflicted harm, the sad reality is a child is dead. The very term shaken baby, as I've said here, is emotive. It's not a word I would ever use. Shaken baby syndrome is even worse because that implies that we know what happens to a baby. The term that we use, both in the courtroom and in science, is non-accidental head injury because that's a description. It's not ascribing a cause. So in this lecture, as in the handout that I produced, that's the terminology that you will hear. So what's the harm in the shaken baby? This illustration, I think, may remind you, but just think before you look at that, what you do when you have a young baby in your arms. You hold it, you nurture it, you hold the back of its skull, don't you? And you do that because it's only got a tiny, fragile, insubstantial piece of muscle, bud and bone between its heavy skull and its body to protect itself. The neck is not well developed at birth. By far the heaviest part of a baby's body at birth is going to be its brain and its skull. Its body is what requires fat and energy to grow and nurture, but the skull and the brain are the most protected organs and they are the heaviest. So when a child is shaken, um, what happens is the head, in theory, moves upon a very weak tether, which is the neck. And the brain is not fixed within it, save by a jelly. So when the skull moves, the brain within it also moves, but at a different potential and different rate. And when the brain moves within the skull, the tiny little membranes that keep it flooded with blood and oxygen, that keep it nurtured and grow, they're the very fragile vessels that can tear. And what you can see, if you look at this image, is that what's, what can happen is that, therefore, there are footprints left, allegedly, in relation to a shake, which is thin film blood that can arise in between the edge of the brain and within the skull. Let's move on. What can happen when you shake a baby? Decreased level of consciousness. An inability to suck or swallow. One of the things we often do in our cases is we look to see when the last time was the child fed normally. And that's because feeding is an incredibly complicated act. You know, we take it for granted. But for a baby to suck and swallow requires a very complicated combination of breathing, swallowing, attention, eyes fixed and following on the bottle. It's an incredibly complicated, multifaceted act, which is instinctive, but when the brain uh, function is impaired, it can become a very difficult task indeed to perform. Limp arms and legs. Breathing may stop. Brain damage. Death. 
What do we do when we're trying to reconstruct what's happened to a child in life? Well, scientists and medics have provided us with something called the triad. The triad is a hypothesis. It is not a diagnosis, although far too often many um, uh, inexperienced lawyers and many experienced scientists take it as so being. It consists of this. Subdural hematoma, which to laypersons like you and me means bleeding between the skull and the brain. Retinal hemorrhages, bleeding behind and in the eyes. Encephalopathy, which is brain dysfunction and swelling. So let's go back to what subdural bleeding means again, because it's taken me so many years, so many years, to get on my feet to ask questions of experts where I purport and pretend to know what they're talking about. And this, as I say, is a whistle-stop tour. So subdural hemorrhage. I put this image up because it's the clearest I could find to try to show how thin and how insubstantial this tiny error is that's um, highlighted in blue, which might indicate that there's been subdural hemorrhage. If you look closely, what you can see is it's, it's a sliver thin. You can see the outside of the skull there, and if you look closely, you can see the brain matter and you can see the supplies of blood vessel that supply it. When we're talking about subdural hemorrhages, we talk about two types. We talk about acute blood, which is fresh blood, and we talk about chronic blood, which is older blood. We talk about bilateral subdural hemorrhages, that's over both sides of the brains, and we talk about single-sided as well. But that's just an introduction to try to show you what may be lying um, underneath the baby's skull. What about retinal hemorrhaging? This slide is to show you just how difficult it is to detect what has gone in a child, wrong in a child's eyes. These hemorrhages aren't big bloodshot things that any normal person could necessarily see. They require close examination. They require particular instruments to see them because what the ophthalmologist is looking for is for the signs of tiny bleeding beyond the pupil. This dot and flame type imaging. So when I talk about retinal hemorrhages, I'm not talking about something that you might see if someone's given you a big punch in the face and you've got a big shiner there. You know, this, is, this is hidden, this is deep, and it's very complicated and it's also quite controversial. So how am I going to try to introduce you to the difficulties of the triad and allegations of shaking? I thought long and hard about this, and if my intent is to try to bring you into my world, I could think of no better way to do it than to give you a case example. You need to live and breathe these cases in order to understand why it is we expend so much time on behalf of the parents for whom I predominantly act, or sometimes for the local authorities, trying to understand what has happened to a child. So in this lecture, I propose to ask you to consider a real-life case um, in which I acted, uh, involving a dead baby, a young couple, the mother mourning her dead son, pregnant, facing a murder charge and proclaiming her innocence and that of her partners. The question I'd like you to consider as we go through this material is, had this baby been born to a couple simply too immature to handle the responsibility of having a young child? Had they shaken him, momentarily losing control? Had they hit him? Had they fractured his skull, for indeed a skull fracture there was? Had they broken the bones of his body, at least 11 fractures, multiple sites of multiple ages? If they had, that implies, does it not, that this child had been abused over a period of time culminating in the violent assault that led to his death? Is that what happened? Or were their protestations of innocence genuine? If so, you can't magic away the signs of fractures on the scans. 
You can't magic away the blood that was found in the eyes or the blood that was found in the brain. So how do they get there? So we'll see. So Jade and Ray, I'm going to take you through his birth, the clinical picture before his collapse, the conduct of the receiving hospital, UCH, the actions of Great Ormond Street Hospital where Jaden died, the post-mortem, and then the criminal and family justice process that followed. So, community and clinical picture. This is vital because we lose sight sometimes when we see a child in a post-mortem of the fact that it was a living, breathing, loved organism and how that child was seen in the community by friends, family relations, by GPs and by nurses is absolutely critical information. You look back on the child's life, you don't simply focus on the images you get of a child who is on a post-mortem slab. This baby was a visible baby. The mother had gone to all her antenatal classes, the child had been seen by the health visitor, the child had been seen by the GP. There were no allegations by neighbours that there had been violent rounds between the couple, to all intents and purposes, this young couple were making it work. What about the home? This was a critical period because the night before Jaden appeared to be well, by the next morning he'd be in hospital and dying. So what did the parents have to say about what happened? <coughs> Jaden had fed and gone to sleep as normal. On waking, his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. He wouldn't feed. The parents rang the out-of-hours emergency medical helpline and were told to take him a GP. At some point, they noticed fit-like movements. I mean, these are young, this is a young couple. Do you know what a seizure looks like? All you know when you see a child behaving is it's not behaving normally. What this couple did was they rang the um, out-of-hours number and they took the child to the GP. The GP saw the child. He heard on the side of caution and referred the baby to the hospital walking clinic. No ambulance was called, no 99 call was made. They made their way there by public transport. On arrival at the hospital, as you'd expect, cast your mind back to what happens to you, you're checked in. There's an immediate triage assessment, isn't there, about the level of care you need, and that's exactly what happened to this baby, Jaden, as he arrived at the hospital. He was showing signs of fitting by now, but not at a point and a degree that anyone took them seriously, as indeed they should have done. He remained in the ward, but his condition deteriorated rapidly, his seizures intensified. Jaden needed intubation, because the doctors needed to know whether he needed some type of neurological evacuation to relieve the pressure which was calling the seizures. So clearly he needed to be intubated. What no one knew at the time uh, was that that anticipated 30-minute delay from the paediatric ward would turn into some four hours, in which time the intubation tube was wrongly affixed, it wasn't remedied or immediately identified, and his lung collapsed. As I've said here, 30 minutes is a long enough time when you're a concerned parent, but what happens when you lose your child for four hours to the care of medics? What happens when the medics discover that there's a skull fracture, and so the immediate imperative to look after and care for the child and identify what's wrong turns into a sequence of tests to see if this child has been shaken? That was what appeared to have happened in this instance. Significantly, he wasn't given any anti-seizure meds, Although clearly his movements had to be stilled in order for him to go through the imaging, what was going on within his brain and his body uh, remained extant. Transfer to Gosh. 
it came a time where baby Jaden needed more care than could be offered and he needed specialist support and so therefore he was transferred to Great Ormond Street Hospital. They sent a retrieval team. His fits were out of control by this stage and despite aggressive treatment they couldn't be brought under control. Jaden was taken to Great Ormond Street Hospital by which stage his condition was incompatible with life. His brain had died. NI was strongly suspected, and at that point, Great Ormond Street, with all good reason, started to think what had happened to this child. They knew there'd been a skull fracture. What else had happened to him? So they investigated, as indeed they should do, and they undertook retinal hemorrhaging, and that's when they saw the footprints. When I go back to the picture, the one I've seen, they saw some imaging, which indicated potentially that there was another limb of the triad. There was already the subdural breathing. There was already the skull fracture, and now they had the retinal hemorrhaging. What about the rest? The radiologist looked at Jaden's bones and found 11 fractures. She specifically discounted any metabolic bone disease, and so, quite rightly, the treating physicians who received that information thought that Jaden was indeed a child who had been seriously shaken and hurt. Police and social services were notified, child protection procedures were initiated, the parents were now under suspicion of abusing their baby, shortly to be um, under suspicion of murdering their baby. The death... So, 23rd of July, the parents were arrested at Great Ormond Street Hospital at Jaden's bedside on suspicion. They never saw Jaden again. Jaden was christened and died at Great Ormond Street Hospital on the 25th of July in the presence of strangers, caring strangers, but strangers nonetheless. No parent or family member was allowed to be present, and the parents' home was turned into a crime scene, which meant they could not go home. Their baby was dead. They were arrested. Upon release, they had nowhere to go. They were 18. Chana was 18. So the post-mortem. This is when it comes to the stage, the really tricky stage, where a living child becomes a combination of blood, bone, and muscle. And the medics try to understand what has happened to it. A tale of two paediatric pathologists. Dr. Scheinberg was instructed by the coroner she looked at the uh, x-rays that had been taken by Great Ormond Street, and unlike the radiologist there, she detected radiological signs of rickets. Um, that was confirmed by her physical examination of the ribs and skull. She snapped the ribs. That's not unusual. We simply don't know it happens. It's a standard test to see how strong the bones are. What she described when he snapped the brains was it was too brittle. It was too easy. And that concerned her, and it confirmed what she believed she had seen in terms of the x-rays. She initiated a request for vitamin D testing of Jaden and his mother, and faced subsequent criticism from the police authorities for so doing, because it appeared as though she was going behind a remit of a um, paediatric pathologist. <coughs> Dr. Scheinberg concluded that death was as a result of hypoxic ischemic injury, that's brain injury as a result of inadequate oxygen supply to mere mortals like you and I. Cause of death was undetermined in the context of severe vitamin D deficiency and rickets. So was that the end of the matter? No, because there were two paediatric pathologists there. The second was Dr Carey. He had been instructed by the Metropolitan Police because there were gross suspicions that the child had been um, abused by the parents. He observed the post-mortem. And he, looking at the signs, concluded that Jaden had died as a result of non-accidental injuries, i.e. shaken impact. So a question I'm going to pose to you in a moment is how it can be that two pathologists, two paediatric pathologists at the top of their game, could observe the same baby, 
observe the same scans, consider the same results, and yet come to two diametrically con opposite conclusions. The outcome of uh, this examination um, was that the police um, charged uh, my client, Chana, and her partner um, with causing the death of Jaden. And that became public, as of course is the public's right in our criminal justice system. So our clients had to deal with headlines such as this with a baby of their child. Four-month-old baby with rickets was shaken to death. Note the quotes. Brain damage so severe it was incompatible with life. Was that right? The criminal trial, because that preceded the family case, Chana was, by the time of the trial, 19. Rohan, a partner, was 22. They'd lived under the shadow of suspicion, as I say here, for two years. By this stage, the superb defence team, which um, Chana had instructed, had amassed their own range of experts. And what you had portrayed and uh, ready to be played out in the criminal justice system was effectively two armies of experts who had come to very opposite conclusions on the basis of the same material. The Crown case, based on their experts, was that the brain damage could only have been caused by the trauma of Jaden having been shaken or his head having been hit against something. He was a four-month-old baby. They relied on the triad of injuries, and whilst they accepted that some fractures could have arisen from rickets, the skull fracture and metaphysical fractures to the arms and legs, and two others were NAI, non-accidentally inflicted. The defence case, based on their experts was that Jaden had undiagnosed vitamin D deficiency in life, causing rickets. The rickets, therefore, had caused weakened bones, including a weak skull, such that normal handling could have caused the fractures. The retinal hemorrhages had been caused by raised intracranial pressure. That's basically the pressure that builds up within the brain um, when it's under stress. Um, and uh, the subdural hemorrhages, SDH there, and brain dysfunction were caused through seizures and a hypoxia. Despite that conflict of evidence, you might think that on that basis the prosecution couldn't hope to prove their case because if we rerun back to lecture one that I sought to give on the 26th of January, you will know that the burden of proof remains always on the prosecution, but the standard of proof is higher in crime than in care. So it's beyond all reasonable doubt, 99-1, whereas in family cases we're talking balance of probabilities, 51-49. But on this basis, even though there were two armies of experts lined up, nonetheless the prosecution were sufficiently confident in their case that the case went to trial. Um, the case was heard over six weeks, and they, the whole Bailey jury heard from over 60 medical, professional and expert witnesses unable to agree a cause such that by the 9th of December, the judge in charge of the case um, asked the jury to direct um, that uh, well, the prosecutors applied to withdraw the charges and therefore the jury returned a not guilty verdict. So, what happened in the meantime? Lives don't stand still. Not everything happens in a vacuum. This young couple have stayed together, even though on the basis of the prosecution evidence, they must have, and they did, and they were asked to ask one another, did you do it? Did you hurt my baby? You can't simply turn a blind eye to the evidence. You've got to confront it as a family. Nonetheless, they'd ask those one another the questions. Each were convinced of the other's innocence, and they had another child. The significance of child, Jada, is that until Jada was born, the family courts and the local authority social services had no interest in the family. Because unlike a criminal trial, 
where a matter proceeds because it's about investigating facts of the past to determine whether or not someone has con committed a crime. So far as the family courts are concerned, you only look to the past in order to identify if there is a future risk of harm. And, moreover, unless there is a child to which that risk attaches, there is no purpose, there is no locus, there is no basis for having any type of family trial because the harm can't be hypothetical. It must be attached to a child. Once Jada was conceived and was due to be born, she became, quite rightly, the object of the local authorities' concerns because they believe that she may sustain the same type of harm that her brother Jaden had died from. So Jada was born to the couple on the 17th of October. Chana, by now aged 18, was compelled by social services, the hospital and the police, to give birth in isolation. Neither Rohan nor any family member was permitted to support her, witness the birth or hold the baby. Just pause and think what that would be like. You don't know yet whether or not Chana and her partner had been responsible for causing the death of their baby. You don't know yet whether they were going through the most awful trauma in terms of being accused of something they had not done. With that background, just bear in mind what it must be like, aged 18, to go in to give birth to your child, knowing it's going to be taken away at birth, and to do so without anyone there to hold your hand. Jada was removed, literally, at birth into police protection. Chana was not allowed to hold the child for one moment. She wasn't allowed to touch the child. She was given a photograph because the midwife intervened and provided her with one. No contact was permitted for the time being. The child was removed into police protection and the local authority initiated emergency proceedings. Again, rewind. It is a common misunderstanding that social services can remove a child at a whim and a behest. They can't do so. Only a court can decide if a child should be removed from a couple. The local authority produced the evidence, but the decision is that of the judge. So any orders made in this case weren't made by the local authority simply rocking up with a piece of paper and taking the child away at the hospital. Right? Take that misconception away. What happened in this case was that the local authority initiated an application. They put their concerns in writing. It went before a judge. Legal aid was provided to the parents and to the child. Again, rerun to the previous lecture. In family cases, unlike in criminal cases, the child also has representation, even though they are but a baby. The parents have representation, and individually so, as does the local authority. But on the evidence available to the judge at the time, given the seriousness of suspicions about Jaden's death, it was almost inevitable that Jada's removal would be approved of by the court, and indeed it was. Jada remained in care throughout the entirety of the criminal and family proceedings, with her parents eventually being given supervised access, but not until a High Court judge decreed it to be so. So, two questions, and um, I'm posing the first one again to you now. I've floated it out before. I want to come back to that later. How can experts in the same discipline examine the same baby with the same medical history and come to such divergent conclusions about cause of death? and inflicted fractures. Question two, why was a criminal verdict not enough for Jada to go home? This simply summarises that which I've told you before. Remember the different standard of proof. It's why in the last lecture I sought to explain why you can have different outcomes for the same child in both the criminal and the family justice procedure. In our family jurisdiction, we are not constrained by rules of evidence that, for example, prohibit hearsay. We look at what's called a wide canvas of evidence. 
the judge is able to take into account many factors that a jury would never read or hear about. Um, that is why, together with the lower standard of proof, you can often have a different outcome in family proceedings. So it took us to the care trial. By this stage, Chana had both a family solicitor and a criminal solicitor. Both of those um, professionals performed extremely vital but divergent duties because you have two solicitors acting to two jurisdictions for a very good reason, which is we have specialist legal aid solicitors who act for their clients, garnering a mass of knowledge, information and contacts, which simply can't be duplicated in any other sphere. We therefore have criminal solicitors who know which experts to consult. They know what, who's going to work with the jury. They know which advocates they want to use. They know what style they want to use. They have huge flexibility over which experts they can construct and how much information they provide. They can receive information from the client which they do not pass on to the court. In a family case, a family solicitor has a very different duty because ultimately what they cannot do is withhold information which is directly relevant to the welfare of the child in the court. So therefore they can't act for the client in both the criminal and the care jurisdiction. They have different moral, <coughs> professional and ethical duties to perform and it's a different, it's a chalk and cheese, the family court and the criminal court. I wouldn't go into a brain surgeon and ask them to take my hernia out. You, know, you need different solicitors for different functions, you need different legal teams for different functions. So, 2012, the parents again, as I say, face the self-same allegations. What had they learnt through the criminal trial? Well, the Crown and local authority experts were now fully briefed up as to the parents' defence because it had a run for six weeks. It hadn't been a full storm. The experts had been into the witness box and had heard the evidence, but far from forming a view um, which may, meant that their views and the defence views um, merged, they were now polarised in their beliefs. So then, the family court's question. Had one parent or the other of them beaten, jaded and shaken or thrown him? Or was his death a consequence of normal handling, inherent vulnerability, vitamin D deficiency, rickets and seizures? And if medical science is objective, what did the experts not agree on cause of death? What's an advocate to do when the medical experts don't agree? I am not a consultant paediatrician. I am not a neurosurgeon. I am not a pathologist. I'm not an ophthalmologist. I'm not someone who specialises in the workings of the blood and the brain and epilepsy. I'm none of those things. I happen to be a brief who happens to do these cases, working with supremely skilled um, uh, lawyers who assist me and who look through the pages and pore over the medical reports because the only way we can deal with these cases is to submerge ourselves in the medical science and the research papers of the specialisms of the experts that we are going to cross-examine. In the care courts, unlike the criminal courts, we don't have the luxury of having coaching sessions from the experts that we instruct. We don't have experts sitting beside us or behind us in the court in order to guide us as the opposing expert is in the witness box. When we stand on our feet, it's just us. And we try to do the best we can, ranging over the disciplines for those we seek to cross-examine, by pouring our heart and soul into the medical records that mostly are hieroglyphs, quite often simply indecipherable, to try to understand what happens. And then we look at research articles that any med student may well have looked at and discarded 10, 15 years ago, and certainly these experts would have done because they're the top of their game. 
But we are what makes a difference to outcome if we get the questions right. And that's why no stone is left unturned. So what did we have to do in this case? Mrs Justice Tice was a judge that we were allocated and she heard evidence over six weeks. She heard from over 40 medical witnesses, including the GP, the health visitors, and then nurses, doctors, and radiologists from both of the treating uh, hospitals. And just look at the range of experts she heard. I'm just pronouncing the names is difficult enough, but we'll give it a go. Okay, so you've got paediatric pathologists, you've got neuropathologists, ophthalmologists, histopathologists, paediatric neurologists, endocrinologists, paediatric neuroradiologists, paediatrics, obstetrics, biometrics, midwifery. And that is exhausting. No wonder it took six weeks. But this is the range of expertise that was called in cases like this and in no other. That is not exceptional. So please, when you read and you consider what goes on in a family court where there is criticism being made of judges that come to do these decisions, can you please bear in mind that judges do not make decisions like this on paper? They do not make decisions such as this without hearing from those who are most eminent in their field. And it's the judges tricky task, to say the least, of trying to unify and to understand what may be competing evidence being given from any one of the people in these disciplines. Myself and Kate Perkins, who sits in front of me here, um, were the ones who were responsible for seeking to understand and cross-examine these experts on these range of disciplines. Um, we're still here. We survived just. So, the evidence unmasking the truth. And this is what we learnt over the course of our six-week trial. We learnt that there could be an accord between the experts because Professor Malcolm, who's a person who's looking at the bones on half the crown, agreed with Dr. Scheinberg, the paediatric pathologist's description, that the rickets Jaden had was moderate to severe. Dr. Malcolm conceded in cross-examination the last time he'd come across a case as severe as this was in the 1970s. Cast your mind back to five years ago. We thought rickets was dead. We thought that through our refined diet and our superb degree of health service and support that vitamin D deficiency in rickets was a thing of the past. It was to be found in the slums of Glasgow at the turn of the century and over the war. It wasn't a phenomena of, um, of our era, and we were wrong. It emerged that Jaden had been seen by health professionals on over 30 occasions, including the five, uh, the five days preceding his admission to hospital. And then we had the advantage of two American experts, Barnes and Miller, who said that as a result of rickets, the fractures could be caused even by normal handling. A difference between the criminal justice system and the family justice system is the ease with which our criminal colleagues can get access to international experts, unlike the family justice system. It makes a big difference on cases such as this, because what isn't widely known but should be is how difficult it is to get any experts prepared to give evidence on controversial subjects like this in the family division. We have a small pool of experts willing to put their head above the parapets, particularly when they're seeking to challenge an orthodoxy. Um, we learnt that the hemorrhages around the site of the skull fracture, remember the skull fracture, it was a skull fracture that had been detected when Jaden was taken off ward, which led to the suspicions of abuse. It was thought to be fresh. What else were the medics to do with a fresh skull fracture but to think that a child had been beaten? Except what happens here when what you find out through identifying the age of the blood around the skull fracture was that it was fresh, so fresh, it was identified as happening on ward in Great Ormond Street Hospital when the parents had been arrested and removed and when Jaden was in intensive care. So unless you've got some marauding psychopathic medic 
going around battering babies, not wondering what colleagues are going to think of their behaviour. It shows, does it not, that what was meant to be a really big indicator towards abuse was not that. If anything, it was a contradiction. It pointed to the alternative. Namely, that Jaden's skull was so fragile that it could be injured even by careful, nurturing, sympathetic, experienced care within an intensive ward. What could we do to explain the blood and the brain signs? We had to deconstruct the triad. Because once the triad is there, it becomes a monumental hurdle to try to take apart. It acquires a significance, I believe, far in excess of the data that goes to support it. But we had to explain how it could be that the blood on the brain and the blood in the eyes could resolve. And that is why this missing four hours became so significant. It was one area that was fresh to us in the family case that hadn't been explored in the criminal trial. We weren't simply rerunning a case already won. We had to make it from evidence that was new and could understand, help us understand what had happened to Jaden. I've told you before that um, Jaden was intubated and the tube was wrongly intubated, which led to a collapsed lungs. What I didn't tell you was in the time he was off ward, his CO2 levels had risen to a dangerous degree. They weren't brought under control. And effectively, as he's moved between different imaging units, he lost the paediatric care that he needed. One can understand why, but the consequence was serious. The seizure meds that he clearly so desperately needed, because remember, he'd been taken off ward down to neurology because they needed to know if he needed an operation to release the pressure on his brain. So his seizures were intense. Nonetheless, the seizure meds that he so clearly needed were drawn but not given, so he carried on seizing. By the time the retrieval team arrived, his condition had deteriorated, clear signs of raised ICP, that's raised intracranial pressure, and significantly, throughout this period, his eyes had not been examined. This is the period when his brain is dying through all of that activity through the seizures. But his eyes aren't examined, one can understand why. But the significance is that at the point when people are putting together the triad, they need to look to see what significant intervening events may happen to a child that can otherwise explain what is otherwise appointed towards abuse. By the time Gosh um, received this child, Jaden's life was over in all but switching off the life support. What Gosh received was a child who already had undergone significant experiences, and yet the exchange of information between the two hospitals was less than good. What was the human cost? Let's go back to the basics. I've taken you through the science. I'm going to take you on to what happened in the, criminal, in the family trial. But these cases deal with real-life people. They are not case studies. This is what had happened. Jaden had been born March 2009. He died just four months later. His parents were aged just 16 and 19. The parents never returned home after their arrest at hospital. It was a scene of the crime. They moved to another flat. We found out later the flat had been bugged by the police to see if they made any admissions. Their names and faces had been all over the local and national media. They'd had to confront the medical and police medical evidence had one another hurt their son. They stayed together and had another child as the investigations rolled on. By the time of the family hearing, Jaden had been dead for three years. 
and his parents were now 19 and 22. They'd been at the Old Bailey, where they'd undergone a six-week trial. And by the time the criminal trial collapsed, Jada was by then 14 months old and she'd never lived with her parents. The parents then had to undergo a five-week trial in the High Court to argue for the return of their care. Jaden had not yet been buried. The inquest into his death was awaiting the outcome of the criminal and then the care proceedings. So what happened after our five-week trial? This was the outcome. Severe vitamin D deficiency had rendered Jaden vulnerable to infection and seizures. Jaden was conscious and suffering from seizures on arrival at UCH, which were not adequately brought under control during his treatment at UCL. We know that because we played the CCTV of him on the bus, arriving at UCL, and then in the corridors. This was not a child who was moribund. If a child has been shaken, go back to what I said at the beginning. You expect there to be an immediate change in consciousness, certainly with injuries as severe as this. So how could it be that Jaden, on CCTV on the bus and CCTV going into hospital and in the corridors was not the moribund child that you would expect to have been shaken. What about the triad? As Mrs Justice Sy said, with I think classic understatement, this is an area of some controversy with strong feelings on both sides of the medical profession. She said, research is required in relation to the different aspects of the triad and the impact of vitamin D deficiency and rickets on babies under six months. The retinal hemorrhages, come back to the triad, remember what we said about them, were more likely to be secondary to Jaden's hypoxic ischemic injury. The encephalopathy was not due to inflicted trauma. It was due to a combination of factors, some unknown, but not including inflicted trauma either by way of impact or shake or other mechanism. The subdural hemorrhages, the blood over the brain, remember, was more likely to be caused by trauma of undetermined origin and that further research was required. Fractures were the product of rickets. The local authority case was not proven. Jaden returned to her parents. So, let's go back to what had happened in the preceding years. How can it be that this was plastered all over the newspapers? Note the picture, note the publication... And then with no hit and irony. What do you see here? Same picture, same family. That is what happens when the media make uninformed pronouncements of people's guilt or innocence. So, was Alanas a one-off? I say no. The human body is a wondrous thing, as I pronounce loudly and proudly up there. Do we still have lessons to learn about how the baby's body, how a child's body works and functions? And yes, we do. And there is no shame in saying that we don't know every aspect of how it works. We are coming across an increasing number of cases dealing with EDS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, of which there are a number of varieties. EDS is an inherited disorder of connected tissue characterised by joint hypermobility, skin extensibility and tissue fragility, including increased bleeding. It's a medical condition that affects the connected tissues in your body. It affects veins more than arteries. The veins carry the blood and therefore that's got a relevance both to the blood that supplies all the parts of your body, including to your eyes and including to your muscles and including to your skin. Therefore, EDS is something we are now becoming aware of because there are now a number of cases that have been before the family courts where babies suspected of being shaken 
it's now been determined to have not indeed been shaken, but have been sustained images as a result of increased vulnerability through EDS. A couple of cases just for you to take away so that you uh, have the context. Devon County Council and EB. Twins born to parents with a range of medical conditions. Mum had EDS, the father had joint hypermobility. One baby of the twins was admitted to hospital with encephalopathy. And as a result of further investigations, the other twin was seen, and both babies were found to have fractures and subdural hemorrhages. Again, shaken children or injuries through benign causes. This judgment was given by one of my other heroes, uh, Mr Justice Baker, who heard the case with his characteristic care and skill and attention to detail. And it's important what he said here, because what he's identifying in that first paragraph is how reasonable and how appropriate it was for those medics initially treating these children to think that the child may have, been, uh, may have sustained an injury. The role of the treating medics and the role of the experts are two entirely different functions. The medics operate on the basis of welfare of the child in terms of medical imperative. They can't afford to take a risk with a kid. Experts come in after the event. They look at the evidence in the round with no responsibility to treat, only to advise. And that is why the two distinctions of those medical branches are so critical in our family justice system and there should be no watering down of their roles and responsibilities. Minnie rant over. Had this case been decided, Mr Justice Baker continued, on the basis simply on the information known to the treating medics, no doubt... The findings would have been made that each of those children had been su subjected to abuse by their parents. What he did, though, is he looked at the case in the round. He took into account this broad canvas I tried to talk about. He identified fa the fact that the children were visible to both um, healthcare services, no concerns about their care, no bruising, no signs of pain or discomfort that would have been expected to accompany the fractures, and the parents' medical history turned out to be critical because uh, it would appear both of the children had inherited their, ch their parents' uh, potential for EDS. This is what he had to say at the conclusion. A court hearing and application for care orders based on cases of suspected physical abuse of children must follow the evidence and pursue the inquiry in whatever detail and for however long is necessary to arrive at the truth. He, having heard all that evidence, oral evidence not just written, including that of the parents, concluded he couldn't find the case proven against the parents. And remember what I said in the first lecture. It's not for the parents to prove they are innocent. That's reversing the burden of proof. It's for the local authority to prove the facts upon which they say the court must be rely in order to find that the parents have been responsible for harming their children. The local authority have to put the evidence up and prove it to the requisite standard. It's not for the parents to come up with an alternative explanation. He observed that in cases of suspected child abuse, it's important to do these things. That there is a full and thorough forensic investigation which requires judicial continuity before a judge of sufficient expertise. Cases such as this should not be decided by magistrates. They need to be in front of specialist and experienced judges who are able to untangle the messy web of history of sometimes parental lies of medical evidence and medical notes and to try to tie it together. They require the wisdom of Solomon. We should not be delegating this to the lower tier of tribunal of judiciary. He identified that judges should be rigorous to resist the unnecessary use of experts, but in cases such as this, they are vital and they have a vital task to perform. 
And lastly, and it comes no surprise to you why I like this phrase and why it's up there, he commented that the case demonstrated yet again the crucial role played by specialist family practitioners and that not enough recognition is given to the contribution of family lawyers. did say he was one of my favourites, didn't I? Right, so, Sherlock Holmes, let's lighten the mood slightly. Does this apply? Should it apply in the family courts? This dictum, I've written it down because I've said it wrong so many times when I've tried to look away from the screen, I'm going to read it. When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Does that have a place in the family court? You no need to answer because I'm going to tell you in case you get it wrong. No, no and no, all right? And that is because we don't understand in all respects how the human body works. What we have to deal with is the fact that we may not know everything. Experts can make mistakes. Lawyers can make mistakes. Professor Joe Delahunty makes many mistakes. We have unknown causes, and we should be proud of the fact that medical science acknowledges that we don't yet understand what happens. So unknown cause is just as valid an outcome for a family court to come to as it is to say benign cause or inflicted cause. How does this phrase come about? Re-A&B, um, a case in which Headley J was asked to consider whether local authorities should be allowed to withdraw a case um, which had commenced because of a serious degree of concern about the death of a 10-week-old baby. I confess I acted in this one as well. I like it. I got the outcome I wanted. Um, what we discovered over the course of our investigations was that the child's skull was almost translucent in places it was so thin. And that uh, meant that we said that it was unusually susceptible to even injury through normal handling. But nonetheless, there was again a body of experts either way, benign cause or inflicted. That's why we need judges of the greatest expertise to call these cases together. Wisdom of Headley J, unknown cause. I have been impressed, he said, over the years by the willingness of the best paediatricians and those who practice in the specialities of paediatric medicine to recognise how much we do not know about the growth patterns and what goes wrong in them, particularly in infants. Since they grow at a remarkable speed and cannot themselves give any clue as to what has happened inside them, and since research uses controlled samples, it's self-evidently impossible in many areas to understand what has happened. We do not shape babies in experiments to see how much force is used. There's a good reason for so doing. It means that what we have to say about their bodies is pure speculation. In my judgment, he continued, a conclusion of unknown etiology in respect of an infant represents neither professional nor forensic failure. It simply recognises that we have much to learn. It also recognises that it is dangerous and wrong to infer non-accidental injury merely from the absence of any other understood mechanism. And then this phrase... Maybe it simply represents a general acknowledgement that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. How much better could you put that? So, miscarriages of justice. Science is constantly evolving. Miscarriages of justice have undoubtedly happened when parents have been wrongly accused of shaking their child to death based on scientific research and hypothesis generally held by the experts, but discarded or refined as science develops. The judge can only make a decision based on the evidence and the expertise of those that are before him or her at the time, based on their medical understanding. Human justice is inevitably fallible, however hard we struggle to avoid it. 
and however rigorous the procedural and other safeguards are, we strive to erect against such injustice. And in the investigation of possible miscarriages of justice and in righting judicially inflicted wrongs, dedicated legal aid lawyers, investigative journalists and the informed public have a huge role to play. Child abuse is the stuff of nightmares. But so too is being falsely accused of harming your child. And in cases where a child dies and the local authority alleges that a carer has caused its death, medical evidence plays a pivotal role in informing the court as to how a court came to die. Just to give you an example... Up until the last decade, it was thought that there was no conceivable way in which you could explain how blood came to be around a baby's brain and how it could be that there was blood within the eyes. In instances where babies who'd been admitted to hospital were found to have blood of two ages around their brain, old and acute, it was thought the only explanation must be the child had been shaken not once but twice. The significance of that is that if a child had been shaken once in a home, it implies someone, if they're not the person that's shaken him, knows the child has been injured because of the loss of control and temper. If, therefore, that non-inflicting parent has allowed the child to stay in that environment and the child has been shaken again, that leads to a lack of protection. So, therefore, it's not simply the act of abuse by the alleged abuser that means the child isn't safe. The non-inflicting parent is also tarnished by that. A number of children have been taken away on the basis of that medical evidence. It wasn't until 10 years ago that research revealed that babies can sustain subdural hemorrhages through the birth process. It can be a caesarean. It doesn't even need to be a vaginal birth. And once more, once you have bleeding on the brain through those tender, tenuous little flickers of veins that deliver the blood and the oxygen to the brain, the membranes. Once they are damaged, they become prone to rebleed. So therefore, if you have a baby who sustained damage through tiny little blood vessels through the birth, and they bleed again, and you have two ages of brain, it doesn't mean necessarily that child has been shaken not once but twice. It may well mean that that baby has simply had a birth process which has led to bleeding around the brain, and then through natural causes, the blood has rebled. Albany children have been removed, however, on the basis of that uh, medical evidence. We now know that retinal hemorrhaging can be caused through the birth process as well. How many cases in which that formed part of the triad a decade ago has that led to the removal of children? So we need to learn, we need to challenge, and we need to have an open debate, which is precisely why I have taken on the challenges of this professorship, in order to try that process and to make sure that we have the best information for so doing. As I've said here, in cases involving allegations of shaking, we have a small pool of willing and available experts. The science upon which their opinion depends is complex and sometimes controversial. The acceptance or rejection of these opinions in the court has a pivotal impact on the outcome of the family at the heart of the case. And just think... But for the vigilance of Dr. Irene Scheinberg, the paediatric radiologist who initiated the test of the vitamin D deficiency both in Jaden and her mother, the outcome of Jaden's case could have been very different indeed. We need people like Irene Scheinberg. We need people who are prepared to go that extra mile to make sure that they come to the right decision because the responsibility on them and on us to try to get the best outcome for our clients is awesome. The importance of open-minded experts in cases such as this cannot be underestimated. 
So what's my message to you? Remember those headlines? Please do not rush to judgment when you hear about a decision made in the family court. You are hearing a tiny proportion in the news of what has gone on within its four walls. Science, message number two, does not stand still. And come back to that question I posed at the beginning. How can it be that equally eminent experts looking at the same baby, the same x-rays, the same bloods, the same medical records can come to such diametrically opposite conclusions? And that's because we need to be brave and say, as the best experts too, that expert evidence is not a science. It is an art. That means there's a difference of hypothesis. That means there's a difference of thinking. It means there's a difference of focus. We need to accept, acknowledge, and embrace that. Medical understanding of non-accidental injury develops through mutually respectful challenge and scientific respect. I really wish we had more mutually respectful challenges going on in the paediatric pathologist world than we currently have, because we need it. We need to have an informed and open debate. As I say here, as the legal profession struggles to keep up with the evolving science in relation to alleged inflicted trauma, the court in care proceedings is enjoyed to do this. Never forget that today's medical certainty may be discarded by the next generation of experts or that scientific research will throw light into corners that are at present dark. That was said back in 2004 in the Cannings case and it is no less vital now than it was then. So, that was a teaser, as I said. I would really like, if I've engaged your interest, to ask you to come to the next lecture, which will be looking at the question of expert evidence and how it is portrayed in the family courts. But I don't want to leave this lecture, please, without identifying what a privilege it was to work with some of the people that sit here, acting on behalf of Chana Alalas, and how many times in every family courts across the land, those lawyers who specialise in legally aided work acting for parents in cases like these, take on challenges which are unsung and unknown outside the walls of the four courts in which they appear. The job that legally aided lawyers do, and by that term I embrace both barristers and solicitors, is immense, and it needs to be understood by the public, because when challenges are made to the funding, it will be those services that are reduced for the most vulnerable and needy in our society. So, if you're interested... Two things. First of all, lecture one, differences between crime and care. The lecture material is outside. Um, please pick it up if you wish to pursue. Equally, the lecture notes, which go through the subject matter upon which I've spoken in much more detail, are there for you to take. Um, thank you for coming and for listening. Thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.